So last week we started a study called Psalter, which I told you last week is a way of describing the book of Psalms, or technically the five books of Psalms that we find uh, in the Old Testament. And um, the Psalter is a musical concept that most of these Psalms were sung or used in worship as part of a liturgy. And I subtitled this study, Songs from the Survivors. The more you read the Psalms, it seems that um, most of them are crying out to God. Uh, there's an orientation that God intervenes in the, the affairs of human beings. There's some disorientation when trouble comes and a reorientation. Uh, so these are individuals that survive various traumatic events in the course of their lives, either individually or nationally. So um, <laughs> with that in mind, um, we're going to come to our second uh, uh, one tonight. And if you have a Bible available in just a couple of seconds, we're going to be at the 23rd Psalm. So uh, if you'll uh, turn there. So these are the five books of the Psalms that um, I mentioned last week, book one uh, through uh, the four, uh, 41st Psalm, and then 42 through 72 is book two, 73 through 89, books three, 90 through 106 is book uh, four, there's a typo, and then uh, Psalm 107 through 150 is book number five. So. The way to look at this is also um, kind of divided in a couple of subtopics here. Last week, we started to talk a little bit about the Psalms as a diverse and editorial-shaped collection of ancient prayers and songs. And I want to kind of finish that thought tonight, and then I want to talk about the age of the Psalms a little bit tonight. So uh, having said that, uh, we will... Uh, start with this. The five books of Psalms uh, comes from, and I don't know how much of this I talked about last week, but so this might be a little bit of a review. But the English translation that we find in the Psalms um, is associated with a heading. And in, when you look at the Psalms, you'll see that it does say book one, book two, and so forth. Now, one uh, one reason they begin to divide the Psalms into this is down here. And I, I don't think I showed you this last week. Uh, when you come to uh, these Psalms, the ending Psalm of that collection finishes uh, very similar. So if you have, uh, if you have your Bible, look at chapter 41, verse 13 of Psalms, and you're going to see how all five books of the Psalms all conclude with pretty much the same language. So in chapter 41, verse 13, it says this, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Now, I'm going to turn over to number 72, and I want you to hear the similarity. So Psalm 72 when you come down to verse 18, which is at the end of the psalm, it says, Praise be to the Lord God, God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. It's not exactly the same, but it's very similar. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. So when you look at those five books, they conclude with the same theme, and they conclude with amen and amen. And it seems as though that the fivefold division of the Psalms might have been organized that way to be on par with the five books of the Torah. There's no conclusive evidence on that, but that's one theory is that the structure of the five books, when you look at them, there's some symmetry to them by the way they conclude using a doxology. And then that opens up the next book of Psalms, which was probably collected a little bit later than the previous book. And then, as we mentioned last week with the illustration of the hymn books, remember that illustration, it's time to update. And so now you have the, the next hymn book that's on your bookshelf uh, that includes some more recent or addition, additional material. Does that make sense to everybody? 
Okay. All right. So I know this now is new. So when you look at the book of Psalms, you must always keep in mind the age of the Psalms. You're looking at material that is a couple of thousand years uh, old, and that impacts the way we read the Psalms. I mentioned on Sunday in my message that it's important to make a difference between um, taking the Bible literally versus taking the Bible seriously. And that's really important in the book of Psalms. Um, there's a lot in the Psalms that you will not take literally simply because of the imagery that is used, like Psalm 91, where God covers us uh, with his feathers, that we rest under his wing, that type of thing. Doesn't mean that God is uh, a bird. It just means that there's a lot of imagery that's used there to communicate. What's really hard about the Psalms, and I'm going to show you uh, this tonight, is that there's language used in it that not even Jewish people know what it means. And some of the headings have terms with them that uh, if you were to look at, I have here with me tonight, it's called the Jewish Study Bible. So this is just the Old Testament. But this was... Um, a study Bible that has rabbinical commentary to uh, all of the uh, books of the Old Testament. And one of the things that's mentioned in the book of Psalms in the Jewish study Bible is, and, the, and these are people that know the Hebrew language, that there's terms in there that they've lost uh, as to definition. What does it mean? They, they associate uh, some of them with musical terms, but they don't know precisely what they mean. And they'll appear sometimes in the heading of the uh, Psalms. Secondly, when you read the Psalms, you're using uh, old literary devices. Uh, the book of Psalms is poetry, but not like the poetry you're used to. Um, in English, poetry is rhythm and rhyme primarily. And in Hebrew poetry, it's parallelism. There's a statement that is made and then a second statement that is made that is just a little bit different, but it says the same thing. So when you read the Psalms, you're looking for couplets um, that that are, are, are saying one thing, and then it's saying the same thing in a different way. So I have my Bible open to Psalm 23. It does, That Psalm does not do this. But if you look at Psalm 24, the one right next door to it, here's how that Psalm begins. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Do you see there? That's the same thing. It's saying the same thing. The earth is the Lord and everything in it. Second line, the world and all who live in it. So that's the way the Hebrew poetry works. It works in parallel. And um, what you're going to find is it's it's a, another way of saying the same thing. Number three, it really is dependent upon older theologies. Um, there is the concept of the one true God that sits among the gods, plural. Uh, this is the idea that there's a plurality of gods, and there is one true God, the God of Israel, but he is the chief God above the other gods. So Pete Enns, in How the Bible Works, his book, talks about how the Hebrew people are not, um, they are, there is not this belief in one true God until later in the Old Testament. In other words, early on in the Old Testament, um, there is this idea that there is many gods, and we see that in the book of Exodus when uh, the plagues come, it's an attack against the Egyptian gods, but there's one true God, the God of Israel. And um, so there's this idea of uh, an ancient world is the idea of various gods, and I mentioned this in Sunday's message as well, these gods have certain territories that they reign over. So it might be rain or childbirth, or in some cases, uh, in the book of Jonah, the, 
the belief was that if Jonah could uh, uh, get away from the land of Israel, he was getting outside the territory of where the God of Israel reigned. So that's why he flees to Tarshish, and um, he thinks he's getting out from the vicinity where uh, his God reigns. And that brings us to number four. It kind of presupposes an old wor uh, view of the world. When you read certain things in the Psalms, you know that you're, you have a throwback on, uh, on, on the dynamics of the world, the idea of a world, whether they believed in a flat earth, they often believed that there's kind of a dome that was over the earth and that rain and so forth uh, comes from this water vapor or uh, firmament is what it's often called uh, in the Old Testament. So all of these are not scientific in nature. They're not giving to us a scientific definition of the world and the way it works. It's giving us an understanding of how the people in that day looked at the world, how they understood the world. It doesn't mean that they were dumb. It just means with the material that they had, this is how they tried to put this together to try to make sense of how the world is shaped, how the world works, and how the gods interact. Does that make sense to everybody? You just got to keep that in mind when you read the Psalms. Well, actually, the the whole Old Testament for that matter. So that really means at times when you read the Psalms, you've got some interpretive work that you got to do. And the beauty of the book is that its imagery is still very accessible and meaningful to us, but sometimes it's not necessarily saying the exact thing that you think it might be saying. So uh, the poetry and um, and some of the images and meaning of those images is contextual and cultural at times. So that brings us to the 23rd Psalm, okay? Now, let me say this as a disclaimer. What I'm going to talk to you about in regard to the 23rd Psalm is going to give to you some insight as to why the Psalm reads the way it does. It is not to upset you uh, in any way, but it's to show you how we tend to uh, retrofit the Psalms in our own worldview. So we kind of take the Psalm and we read into it. So let's read the Psalm first, and I'll show you what I'm talking about here. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That psalm has been used millions of times, uh, and primarily it's used as one of the primary funeral texts for memorial services and graveside committals. Now, I want us to think about the layers of this psalm, and and I want to show you what I mean, how we kind of read back into it, all right? So um, let, I'm going to minimize our viewer here for a second so I can see the text a little bit better. So when you read the 23rd Psalm, and the minute we hear, the Lord is my shepherd, the first thing that will come to mind is a shepherd that is watching over a flock of sheep. And that's rightfully so. That That's a part of the ancient world, and there was flocks, and there were shepherds. However, what you'll find is that uh, the image of shepherding in the ancient Near East was a metaphor for kingship. So it would read something like this. The Lord is my king. I shall not want. Now, he's using 
the idea of shepherd uh, imagery here, because we can relate to green pastures, quiet waters, that type of thing. But in the day and age in which this was written, and, and especially if this is a post-exilic psalm, then this makes a lot of sense. So I want you to keep your thumb here in the 23rd Psalm, and I want to go over to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 34. And when you get to Ezekiel chapter 34, uh, I'm going to begin up at the beginning, uh, but one part that you want to look at is verses 11 through 16. But I want you to notice here in Ezekiel, and I'll bring us back up so we can see each other here. Um, Ezekiel chapter 34, it says, the word of the Lord, verse one, came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Now, he's not talking about the shepherds that are watching a flock of sheep. The, the term shepherd has to do with uh, some type of leader, uh, uh, possibly a politician, even a king. And here, Ezekiel is to prophesy and say something to them. And here's what he says. This is what the sovereign Lord said. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? Well, we see this all the time. People that get into power or into leadership, into politics, all of a sudden, they're just looking out for themselves, what benefits themselves, what enriches themselves, rather than taking care of those that they're supposed to be shepherding or leading. Next uh, line, should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. They push all the money to the top. What they're doing is they are, um, you know, they are using their position to enrich themselves rather than take care of those uh, below them. Verse four, you have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. They could care less of those that are in need of medical attention. You have not brought back the strays or search for the lost, you have ruled them harshly and brutally. So there's no ounce of compassion in these leaders. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. Well, what is in reference here is the exile and the empires that uh, put uh, Israel under their uh, bondage. My sheep wandered all over the mountains on every high hill. So you'd see how they're exploiting this imagery of a uh, shepherd and flock, but it's talking about leaders. Verse seven, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd, so has been, um, and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and I will hold them accountable for my flock. In other words, uh, I'm taking into account how you took care of the people that you were supposed to take care of. Um, then at the very end of this chapter of Ezekiel, there's a promise. Uh, jump down to verse 20. It says, Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Do you see the imagery that's being? Here are people that are enriched and powerful and leaving other people uh, to scrape, scrape and uh, search for food and things that they need. It says, because you uh, shove the flank and shoulder uh, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away. I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another 
And then verse 23 is the promise. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them and he will tend them and be their shepherd. So if in case you didn't catch that earlier in the chapter, I think this is pretty straightforward. The shepherd here is a representation of a king or a leader. And the promise is there's going to be one that uh, will come out of the line of David. Verse 24, I, the Lord, will be uh, I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So now let's go back to the 23rd Psalm for a moment. This is quite a promise. If this imagery here is not the Lord is kind of like just the shepherd that's watching over a flock of sheep, but the Lord is king and he is watching over his people. And now this imagery becomes very powerful. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. In other words, I can't take care of some of the things that only he can take care of. And the idea of serenity and peace uh, is found in, in words like green pastures, quiet waters, restoring my soul. So this psalm here is a psalm that most uh, scholars, and including Jewish scholars, thinks is not written by David. We'll come back to this in a moment. Where do you see a Psalm of David doesn't necessarily mean that it was written by David. So here in the Jewish study Bible, I want to read just a couple things for you. So here the rabbi says this about the 23rd Psalm. God, the divine shepherd king, leads his people to nourishment and safety, keeping them alive and protecting them. In verses five and six, the psalmist is, hosted by God and hopes to remain in his presence all his life. Some scholars now interpret the psalm as an exilic or post-exilic portrait of a new exodus from exile to return in the land of Israel. Then he, he, he gives some references in the book of Isaiah uh, and another psalm, Psalm 78, as an example of that. Then the rabbi says, this interpretation helps to see the psalm's two parts as a unity. God guides the people through the difficult journey from Babylonia and then hosts them at his own table, the rebuilt temple. Isn't that fascinating? That this psalm is actually talking about a group of people that want to come back to the land. They want to come back to a rebuilt temple and they want to worship God but they had to walk through the valley of the shadow of death in exile. And God brings them out of that. And he prepares a table, even in the presence of their, his enemies, their enemies, and the idea of being anointed with oil and God watching over is all a part of this psalm. Now, having said that, that's a little bit complex to read at a graveside to try to, to say those type of things. It's just too complex. The psalm has taken on a life of its own, and that's okay because it brings great comfort and it brings great meaning when we think about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, not as exile, but actually passing away. And that's the way the 23rd Psalm is used 99.9% .9 of the time in, in uh, funeral and graveside committal settings. But should we try to change that? No, not at all. For us, this poetry has come in such a way that it has allowed us to draw strength and comfort from it. Does that make sense? And that's what it was doing in the life of the nation here. So here's another um, uh, angle at it. So I mentioned this is probably, this psalm is used 99% of the time in 
memorials or committals. And it's primarily because of verse six. Notice verse six. Here's how it ends. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, here's the problem. When the, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, called the Septuagint, the translators used a future tense here. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, notice here, it's probably better translated, and I will return continually to the house of Yahweh for as long as I am alive. That's a completely different meaning. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We tend to think of that as going to heaven, right? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. After we pass away, we'll go to heaven. But in, re in reality, what the text is talking about is the hope to be able to return to the land and continue to return to the temple to worship Yahweh. So why, why do we suggest that? Well, the Old Testament doesn't have a very well-defined afterlife. It's just not there. So culturally speaking, the Jews didn't believe in heaven or hell. They believed in Sheol, which was just the place of non-existence, the grave. And so in the mind of the ancient Israelite, when a person passes away, they go to this place of the dead. Uh, everyone stays there. There's only one hint in the Old Testament of resurrection, uh, and that's in the book of Daniel. But most of the time in the Old Testament, you will not fi find post-mortem uh, post uh, descriptions at all. So when you keep that cultural thing in mind, it is more likely that this, what this is talking about is a return to the temple where God is seen as the gracious host that brings his people safely into the temple area, and he will prepare a table. Even though they still have enemies, they will be safe in the presence of God. So that would bring great comfort to an exilic or post-exilic community that is wanting to come back to the land. So now that I've possibly destroyed your concepts of the 23rd Psalm, and I, I, I say that very genuinely because a lot of times this type of thing will upset people because this angle has never been taught or uh, whatever, and, and we've always thought of the psalm in one particular way. But like I said, what I think is happening here is we've developed our own kind of tradition around this psalm, and I think that's okay. Uh, it's fine because it's trying to comfort the people of Israel in their day, even while we try to comfort our people in our day with this imagery. Does that make sense to everybody? Um, so that's the that's the problem you get into when you're reading the Psalms, is you think you're reading one thing, but until you kind of take a deep dive into the text, uh, and see what the culture context is, a lot of times we might be, be misreading uh, some of these psalms. That's why it's good to have a good study Bible. Um, it'll give you notes along these lines. But, you know, occasionally, even, even study Bibles, especially Protestant study Bibles, they will just hold this line and they will, and, and until you read some people like the rabbis and stuff, and the, and and they begin to say, um, there's another thing that's going on here. Sometimes it's it's you know not even on our radar. So let me stop there. See if you have some thoughts or questions. So don't. Don't shy away from the use of this psalm. The original meaning is a little bit different than the way we use it, and that's okay.
we use this psalm uh, as a, a means of strength. So, any thoughts? Okay, so here's an example of what we will take from the New Testament, which has a more definitive post-mortem, not much, but a little bit more uh, definitive portrait of post-mortem existence uh, through um, Jesus talking about resurrection. Um, and then the other most popular funeral text besides Psalm 23 is John 14. And it says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and receive you to myself. So when we then take like New Testament to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, we tend to reread our theology, which is much later, a thousand years later, back into the Old Testament text. Um, and we just have to realize that that's our tendency is to do that, rereading it uh, back in. So as a an interpretive practice, we must be careful not to take something that has developed later in the Bible and read it back into the what was uh, pre uh, previous. And I think uh, a good example of that is here, the 23rd Psalm. It's not a psalm primarily about dying. It's a psalm about comfort, that God's not going to abandon his people. And I, at times they thought they were abandoned when they were in exile in Babylon. And um, so as far as a post-mortem type of psalm, I would say that they had as many questions as we do about it. And um, they had more questions than they had answers. And so does that make sense to everybody? Any thoughts or questions? Okay, then we're going to move along here. So I mentioned a moment ago that a Psalm of David is at the head of the 23rd Psalm. Now, because it says a Psalm of David does not necessarily mean it was written by David. Um, some of the Psalms use a heading as a way of establishing credibility. So there are anonymous writings that use sometimes uh, figureheads as a way of establishing authority and credibility. So think about the book of Ecclesiastes for a minute. The author only identifies himself as Koaleth, which means, or translated, means the teacher. But in Ecclesiastes 1.1, it kind of proposes that it's Solomon that um, is writing uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. However, there is really no substantive proof that that is true. However, many of the things that's in Ecclesiastes might uh, might fall in line with the wisdom sayings of the book of Proverbs. This is the way life works. So the readers of the Psalms usually assume that David wrote most of them. Some people think that David wrote all the Psalms. And that's not that's not true for sure, because what we find is that there's some psalms that it's impossible that he was the author of. But this idea has been around a long time, that David is the primary author of the psalms. It might be that the authorship of the psalms uses David in a way to... Um, to bring credibility to these poems. And here's why. For, so the David tradition comes from the fact that he was a good musician. So I want you to go over to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. So David 
is on the scene here while Saul is on the throne. Now, Samuel has already anointed David to be the next king. And Saul, I think, has a premonition that something's up and he becomes very agitated. He is an individual that has, I think, some um, mental health issues that are going on. But if you come down uh, to verse 14, here's the way the author of 1 Samuel puts it. He says, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So whatever is happening in Saul's life, he has, he's agitated. Uh, he's an individual that's sad. He's bitter. He, he struggles with depression. And then verse 15 says, Saul's attendant said to him, see an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. You've heard of music therapy? Goes all the way back to 1 Samuel, okay? He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well, and he's a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. And, of course, who they're talking about is David. Verse 19, then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who's with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son uh, David to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. So the David tradition is, this is a young man that has everything going for him. You see the description here. He's a brave man. He's a warrior. He's eloquent. He's good looking. And he plays the harp. So what has happened is the idealism of David is one, this is the type of king that we want. And so David is brought close to Saul, and in that day, again, a contextual cultural thing, in the ancient world, it was believed that music, and I really do believe, music has certain properties to it that can soothe the soul, it, uh, it can be exciting, it can bring enthusiasm, it can do a lot of different things. But in the case of Saul, it was to soothe his uh, troubled mind. And so David will sing to him as well as play for him. There's a couple other references here. You'll see uh, that uh, Saul uh, and Jonathan pass away in 2 Samuel chapter 1, and David sings. There's a, a, a song there in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel uh, after their death. Uh, he sings another song that's recorded in 2 Samuel 22 after a military victory and even as he approaches his own last days, his last words are put in a musical uh, fashion in chapter 23 of Second Samuel. Now, the reason I say this is David seems to be the ideal person to attach to the Psalms, to give them credibility, and to bring them back into... Uh, an authoritative base of information that's in the Psalms that will move beyond the Torah. And again, I think that's why there's five books of the Psalms to maybe co uh, uh, correlate with the five books of the Torah. But you'll notice here of the 150 Psalms, 116 of them have titles. 73 of them are attributed to David then some of them have long titles that try to attach not only um, the name David to the psalm, but the reason that the psalm is written. In other words, a longer title will say, because of uh, this situation, this psalm uh, was written. It might be in memory of David. 
It might be because of the inspiration of David, but it doesn't necessarily mean it was authored by David. So the growth of the Davidic tradition was one that um, was added to. You notice here that when the Bible Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Septuagint, they increased the number of the David Psalms from 73, to go back down here, 73 are attributed to David in Hebrew. But then when it comes to Greek, they add here 12 more Psalms that are attributed to David. So then that addition shows kind of the fluidity with which the name of David was attached to some of these. Now, what's interesting, you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947 by a shepherd boy as he's throwing rocks into a cave and he heard a crash and he go, went in to investigate and there were these containers with scrolls uh, that were uh, far older than any of the scrolls of the Old Testament that we had. So after they were examined and so forth, that's one of the tools that was used to see whether the translations of the Old Testament that we have in our Bible syncs up to something that is older uh, in tradition. But there is a scroll there that's called the Psalm scroll. And the Psalm scroll in the Dead Sea Scrolls said David composed 3,600 different poems and songs. So you can see he, he was an individual that was known. He was a rock star of his day. And so to be able to attach his name to certain things gave it credibility. Does that, does that make sense? So by the time the Dead Sea Scrolls were uh, written, which is in the first century BCE, not found until 1947, um, what we do find is that um, many of these uh, of the things that are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls de definitely connected to uh, the Psalms to David. And of course, another uh, Jewish resource, rabbinic resource, is called the Jewish Talmud, uh, said that David was the primary author of the Book of Praises. In the New Testament, occasionally you'll find a quote of the Psalms and they will attribute it to David as well. So David becomes a prominent person, but you'll find that, and I want you to go over to Psalm 137 real quick here. Not all of them are written by David. So in Psalm 137, now, this doesn't have a title to it, so it's not saying that it's attributed to David. However, we know this is post-exilic, looking back upon the exile experience. Verse 1, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, in other words, Jerusalem. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy, they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. This is looking back upon their exile experience and how they were taunted by those who had taken them captive, saying, come on, sing one of your uh, psalms. And, um, and then the psalmist here, whoever it is that wrote Psalm 137, says, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. So we know that the Psalms, many of them have a later date attached to them. Uh, many of them are after the exile. So what I'm trying to tell you is that even though we tend to associate the Psalms with David, he did not write all of them. Did he write some of them? Yes, he did. But not probably not at the volume that we find in uh in the headings of the Psalms. So why on earth then would um, later editors attach the uh, David to the, to the Psalms? Look down here at the bottom. Most scholars do not read the David title as an indication of authorship. 
but it could mean that some of these psalms were written for David while he was a king or on behalf of David, inspired by David's rule concerning David. And I'm going to show you an example of that in a second. Or either dedicated to David, or maybe David himself was the one that was the author. So most scholars think that there's a certain ambiguity uh, to most of the Psalms, and uh, the relationship is left open. But when you see the name of David, it's either trying to give credibility to this poem, or it might be inspired by the rule of David, which, remember, David is not a perfect man, but he is kind of the Camelot of uh, of the ancient Israel uh, lights. Yeah, he was the ideal ruler. That's why they want someone from the line of David. Um, and they look for someone that they can call the son of David uh, as they look for a Messiah. So does that make sense? Um, I hope it does. So other, other Psalms do have other names attached to it. We talked about this last week, Korah, sons of Korah, Asaph. There's even one Psalm 89, Ethan, um, and Solomon's name is attached to a couple of them as well. So how can I help clarify any of this for you? And do you have any questions? I have one. I was um, always thinking that it was David that wrote that Psalm 23 because he's saying uh, in the terms of a shepherd, which he was, right mm -hmm. and then, yeah um and he was a musician so it makes sense that he would be writing songs and then as king he would say these are the songs we're gonna sing <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. and it, it it very well could be um that many of these psalms were inspired by david some of them might not have been written until later uh they might not have been written down so uh, some of these psalms might have been known by the worshiping community. Uh, they might have been used. It might have been something that was um, memorized. Um, if you go in, and, and Kay, you have a Catholic background, you could go into a Catholic church, uh, any worship service, and I bet that you already know uh, parts of the liturgy, what to say when, because... Yeah. You know, you just know it by heart and right. you know that this is what's coming. And if the priest says this, you're to respond this way. So many of the Psalms might have that going on as well, that it was a part of the worship tradition. And and finally, some of these things are written down. And as they look back upon it, they attribute it to the time of of David or maybe another author as well so yeah uh, I just I just love the example of him that he was made so many mistakes and like murdered you know for Bathsheba and then he's a man after God's heart and that was what mattered it didn't matter that he made so many mistakes or yeah. screwed up so badly but that that was what was important to God that he was a um like he praised him for waking him up in the morning and mm -hmm. I'm grateful for this day, you know, mm -hmm. so just praising him and and everything really. Yeah. You're so right. I mean, David was an ideal leader, an ideal king. He was a terrible father. Um he uh made a lot of stupid decisions. He made some choices that actually he lost his son Absalom because he was a jerk. Um, I mean, just different things that David did at times didn't show wisdom at all. He showed favoritism. Um, Solomon uh, seemed to be given the throne. He wasn't the one that was the rightful heir to the throne. Uh, that caused um, jealousy and envy in some of uh, Solomon's siblings or half-siblings, uh, that type of thing, too. So, um we tend to idealize David, and and he is just an individual that um, God used, uh, but 
what we realize is that he was an idealized leader. And at that point in the life of the nation, that's what they needed. And that's what they chose to make David, this ideal idealized leader. This happens in our own uh, histories as well. You know, uh, John F. Kennedy was considered to be the Camelot before he was assassinated, that he was going to be the great hope, uh, that type of thing in American politics and so forth. So, you know, these type of things are not just, these things aren't new to us. It goes way back as well. All right. Just a couple more slides for tonight, and then I'll be done. So maybe, here's another thing to keep in mind here. The titles might not necessarily be about authorship, but about function. So I mentioned earlier tonight, you're going to see these strange names in the Psalms. Uh, Shemanith, Giddith, Shagion, Mutlaben. All of these uh, are probably musical terms. But even the uh, Jewish study Bible says we have no idea what they mean. <laughs> But they held, they preserved the tradition of it. Does that make sense? They they put it in, um, and even though they didn't know exactly what it was referring to, uh, they kept the tradition to it. Now, um, I mentioned just a moment ago that there are certain long titles, not just of David or of Asaph or sons of Korah. But there is a historical notation that they try to attach it to. Go, go over to Psalm 51. This is where we'll finish up tonight. Psalm 51 is a very familiar psalm for us. You'll recognize a lot of the language here. But I want you to notice the long title that it's given. So Psalm 51, and then before it gets into the text, it says, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So you have 13 of those type of psalms that give a long title that's connected to a historical incident. Um, and there's a couple of ways to think about this. So notice on the slide here, um, it's not only linking us to specific events, but in later tradition, it might also be that historical note is a guide to us on how to read the psalm. In other words, when you read Psalm 51, it's a confessional psalm. Okay, listen to it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. And then it goes on, talks about cleanse me, create in me a new heart. Uh, I will teach transgressions, uh, transgressors your way and so forth. But the first part of it is something very unusual. You don't have too many of these confessional type psalms. This is a very specific type of psalm that uh, would be used as a way of asking for forgiveness. So what some uh, scholars have said is the long title might not be a historical note as much as a hermeneutical one. In other words, this psalm the way it's written fits perfectly into David's life because he was such a, uh, a doofus when he committed his uh, his sin with Bathsheba. And of course, 
there again, we tend to soften that even. Uh, we think of David committed adultery with Bathsheba. It's more akin to rape because Bathsheba could not say no. And of course, we've just seen that in the news this past week. A person of power that is able to force something upon someone. So again, David is not perfect, but when you do read the text and Nathan confronts him about it, he says, um, you know, there was a guy that had all kinds of sheep and there was another that had just one little sheep and this guy comes and takes that one. And David lashes out and says, well, that individual should be, you know, he should be executed. And then Nathan says, you are the man, David. That's you. That's what you did. You took um, Uriah's wife for yourself and 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 you have a harem, uh, you know. So that, if you're interested uh, in that, I believe it is in... Uh, what chapter is that? First Samuel. I can't remember. I'm having a brain freeze here. Anyways, if you find the chapter where Nathan confronts um, David, I was thinking First Samuel, maybe it's Second Samuel. Yeah, I'd have to find it. I've got a brain freeze going on with that right now. But the point is, um, David did repent. David did repent. So it's um, 2 Samuel 12. Thanks, Esther. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And it here's the parable that uh, Nathan says. He, uh, verse 1, he says... Um, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of cheap, uh, sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So it's not just a sheep, it's a, like a pet. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And then verse five tells us the emotion of David. David burned with anger against the man and said to David, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan, talk about somebody that has some chutzpah. Nathan said to him, you're the man, says that to the king, you're the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. And then you do this, that type of thing. So the very response of David, the very response of David is very akin to the, um, the Psalm, Psalm 51, in terms of confession, and asking for forgiveness. So you can see how editors could take that historical incident and, and attach it here. This might be a psalm of David, or it might be a psalm concerning David that parallels David. You see what I'm saying there? So any other thoughts about that? Well, it's not really about the Psalms. It's about the David Nathan uh -huh. piece. It, one of his subsequent sons, he named after Nathan, didn't he? I'd have to look it up. I don't remember. I, th I think he did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I. There's a lot of things I'm forgetting in my senior years. <laughs> hey, you're still a sweet young thing, Larry. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much, Shelly. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs>
Other questions, comments? So all I'm trying to show you is the Psalms. They're beautiful. And they are applicable to us in our day and age. But as long as you read it and keep in mind its context, its culture, and some of the difficulties of the book of Psalms, then you'll understand at times we have taken it down a different road, maybe than what the original meaning of some of these Psalms were. And again, in the case like Psalm 23, that's okay. That's okay. It brings great strength and comfort uh, to grieving people. Other thoughts? If not, that's where we'll end for the evening. So I hope you're enjoying this nice weather today and the rest of the week. And uh, have, a good we'll night. have a good night, everyone. Thanks, Larry. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye.